Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder. I created Alzheimer's Speaks because my mom had dementia for 30 years. And I was a frustrated daughter and family member who really believed that we need to have more information, uh, more products, services, and tools in our hands. And so Alzheimer's Speaks is really about raising everyone's voice and um, so that we can find all those answers that we that we need. We also have kind of turned into this media outlet that helps companies expand their brand footprint as well through our following because again we want people to find and be able to have choice of, of what they need in in their own life and their own journey with dementia. And you our listeners, well gosh we'd be nothing without you. You see it's your likes, your clicks, your shares that has really raised our profile. So I, I want to thank you, and I also want to invite you to be a guest because chances are you have a story to share as well. So if you're interested in that, please reach out to me. You can um, go to alzheimerspeaks.com, which is our main website, and there's a big contact button up in the upper right-hand corner, and shoot me an email or you know give me a holler. I would be more than glad to chat with you. Now, before I introduce our guest today, I want to give a shout out to a few organizations. Um, the first is Dementia Action Alliance. Um, they are a group that is really about reimagining dementia and becoming more person-centered, more relationship-based, and helping those with dementia um, raise their voice. And they're having a conference, it's actually their second one, this June, the 20th through the 22nd in Atlanta, Georgia. And it's a, it's a fabulous conference, and I would encourage you to go if you are at all available. Next, I just want to give a shout-out to Gable Pines. I've been doing some educational programs with them. And this Friday, uh, May 3rd, we're going to be doing a, an educational program called As the Cookie Crumbles. That's going to be talking about how dementia progresses, what it looks like, and how to find hope, how to, how to maintain yourself and your loved one you might be taking care of, or if you're a professional care partner, you know, how, how can you do the best you can in that job? And that'll be May 3rd, Friday from 10.30 to 12.30 in Badness Heights, Minnesota. And you can call them um, and attend for free. It's 651-829-3171. That's 651-829-3171. Now, let me introduce our guest today. I'm very excited to have Karen Severson with us. She is a uh, geriatric psychiatrist with over 20 years experience working both in hospitals and in nursing homes. And her passion is really to educate families and professionals on what she's learned from working in those environments and to also improve end-of-life care for those dealing with all forms of neurocognitive um, illnesses. She's written a book with a really interesting title. It's called, Look, I Shrunk Grandma. A Psychiatrist's Guide to Nursing Homes and Dementia and End of Life. And um, so so welcome, Karen. How are you doing today? Super excited to be here. You've inspired me to talk about my own book just with that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad because it's a it's something that we do need to talk about. But before we even dive into the book. Let's let's talk about um, the book itself and the title. Um, what made you choose the title? You know, look, I shrunk grandma, and um, and kind of the the front cover and the look itself. Yeah, I really 
working I was working in an assisted living and they asked me to do a memory testing. So we asked everybody in the building to come down and get their memory checked. So I sat there and waited and waited and waited and nobody showed up. Uh, I'm like, oh my goodness, everybody's afraid to come down and get a memory screen. So I realized people don't, it's hard to talk about this subject. So I thought, the, why don't I write a, something that's funny that people could kind of read about a serious subject and laugh. Uh, not that it's a funny subject at all, but it helps to get through this thick and sometimes painful material if you have a sense of humor. So I, it was kind of hard to write a book that was funny and talked about such a serious subject uh, without offending anybody or upsetting anybody. But uh, I felt I really, to get people to read it and not avoid looking at it, I had to do something that was, and um, I think I'm kind of funny sometimes. I don't know, not everybody finds me funny, but I try my best. <laughs> <laughs> if you talk with nurses and doctors, we all develop a sense of humor to deal with some very traumatic and upsetting um, situations. So one way we cope with that is develop a sense of humor. So that's why I, I tried to find something funny that would not make people so intimidated or afraid of the subject. So that's how that name came about. Well, I think that's wonderful. And I think most families use humor too. You know, I mean, one of the, one of the favorite things, you know, I love to do is laugh with family and friends. And sometimes we take ourselves too seriously when there's an illness and we forget how important that is, how that lifts us up, how that makes us feel human, how it, you know, um, just kind of, puts us in that tribe mentality where we belong. And when we, um, when we are too sad, when we're too frightened, when we're too scared, when we're too filled with angst, that just kind of, you know, perpetuates between us and builds and, and cannot be real healthy. So I, I, I appreciate you taking, um, taking that angle because this is a this isn't, but yet one that we need to learn a little bit more about. Mom passed from breast cancer, and she passed in the process while I was in medical school. She actually was a patient in my medical school and died eventually while in the hospital that I was training at. And that had such a, her death and dying and suffering and search for a better life or a cure or to live longer had such an impact on me. Um, so it's a little bit different. It's still an end of life issue uh, and trying to improve quality of life and, and length of life, but in a different illness. So I kind of compare the both a lot. And I spent a lot of time, right after she passed, I took a year, which is probably not the smartest thing to do. But I was offered a, a pathology fellowship where I did autopsies. And then again, I was talking about looking at death and dying and studied a lot of the brain doing autopsies. So I think that also impacted me the rest of my my career. I, I, I looked at death dying and how we handle that and deal with that. So that's kind of been my entry um, to working with this illness. Plus I find I love the elderly and I think they're hilarious a lot of the time. And that's like where I feel my comfort zone. They're like kids, they play, they're fun. So it really was a nice mixture for me. So that's how I fell into this field. The, the Alzheimer field. I think it's interesting when you say, you know, they're, they're fresh, they're funny, you know, they, they play. Cause I think a lot of times people think, Oh, an older person, they can't play, but you know, they're, they don't worry so much about what they say or what other people are going to think, you know, they're not so protected and they just kind of can cut to the chase. And I know even for myself, I'm a, I'm a grandma now. Mm -hmm. And I, I look at, you know, my daughter and, and her family and raising the kids and how stressed they can be and how stressed I was when I was a mom. And now as a grandma, oh, it's not a big deal. You know, this too shall pass. I mean, you just, you have this different wisdom. You're, you're pulling from this, this different sphere of knowledge and, and balance. And I, I, I too, I, I've always been attracted to our elders. I just think they are so rich and and have so much to offer and teach us thank you for for doing doing the work that you do why do you think it's really important for people to understand neurology uh, you know and the, and the pathology of dementia and medications used especially when we're dealing with those old behaviors so 
in my time in the nursing homes, I would just watch people and I'd watch families, I would watch staff and watch how they would interact with, you know, people suffering from dementia. And a lot of times the way they would communicate, they wouldn't really understand that these people neurologically can't do a lot of things that we take for granted, especially with language. So they would get much more frustrated trying to explain things to people when neurologically the person couldn't do it. And then that would cause a lot of behaviors and issues. So, you know, even with the memory problems, uh, families would really struggle, not just families, nurses too, uh, would really struggle uh, thinking somebody could do more than they really could. So I'm like, if we don't really understand the neurology of the of this disease and uh, why it's happening, then it kind of puts like, I'm a little bit protective of my, I, my patients or my clients, whatever you like to call them, that uh, if people would assume they could do things that they really couldn't, and then that person would end up feeling bad about themselves or less of a person, I really wanted people to get into their world and understand their world so that they wouldn't assume the worst things of that person because it's not about personality all the time or being a bad person or they were a bad mom when they were little and you know they continued to be angry and mean you really have to get into their world and, and know what their brain is capable of doing and not doing in order to really you know understand and not make false attributions to behaviors so that's why it was really important for me to explain the neurology i had put a whole chapter in there just like really explaining mostly what um the frontal lobe of the brain, which you know, generates behaviors and processes information. And so people wouldn't take things so personally, the family members or the person wouldn't feel quite so bad about what was going on. So it's just increasing understanding and knowledge that you know, help anxiety and depression. Um, and then working in nursing homes, just to give you an idea, I would walk in and go up to the nursing station and they would see a list of problems I had to deal with or work with. And one of them say is, uh, so-and-so is hitting their roommate. So I, I would have to go evaluate that whole scenario of the hitting, why the behavior. And then I would have to talk to the family member and say, hey, I'm asked to see your mother or father because they're hitting. So part of the issue is that is the family members wouldn't see the hitting or the behavior, and they would think that sometimes it was caused by the nursing home or, or some other issue. And I would really have to spend time convincing families of the, the behavior's existence. And that, that isn't always um, easy to do. So I thought writing this book would kind of help um, people understand that a lot of the behaviors don't show up when we want them to show up or that they're gonna see them. And the family, the nurses will always see those behaviors, but the um, families won't. So it becomes just the first step is just getting everybody on the same page as far as a behavior exists. So it's important to know the neurology of dementia to really understand that as well, I think. And I explain that in my book. But also once you convince the family like, hey, yes, there is a problem with aggression. We should start this med. Explaining the medications is really hard because they they have a lot of side effects, risks and benefits, and the person's so upset that they're being get, gotten a call because of the behavior in the first place. It's hard for them to take in all this information about medications. So I added a a whole chapter on medications, psychiatric medications, in, in layman's terms, so people understand what these meds can do and what they can't do. Um, and that way, I, I would want that book available for family members to read. So when they do get that call from a nursing home saying that so-and-so has a behavior or a depression, that you'll be prepared to have a, a good conversation with that nurse and improve the level of care for everybody because you'll both be on the same uh, page when talking to nursing home staff. So that's a long-winded answer. It's important, like you said, to, to explain the neurology, and then there's a whole other thing of people accepting it. You know, you can, you can explain it all, but there can sometimes still be a, um, a lot of denial going on with families, or, well, not, not my family, you know, that might be your family, but my family would never do such a thing. You know, or, or my dad was a pastor or minister. You never spoke like that. And with right, you know, right. certain types of dementia behaviors change. Or I've heard um, some families say, gosh, I really like this person. I wish this person would have raised us because of the changes. 
you know, due to the dementia too, where their upbringing, you know, was kind of turbulent and things. So, um, and, and I love the point when you talked about trying to get families not to take it personally, because we always, if, if something is done, we always think it's done to us. And then it's, they're pushing our, you know, you hear families say, well, they're just doing that to push my buttons, you know, and it's like, they don't know where the buttons are to push anymore. You know, a lot of times they've lost that ability as the disease progresses. And, um, and that yeah. is, that is real important. Or um, when you were saying, you know, family kind of in denial, you know, they would never hit anybody. You know, somebody must have, somebody must have started it and they were just defending themselves. Um, it is important to be able to document and relay that in a, in a fashion where families can understand it in order to accept it because they're, those are big changes. Those are really big changes. It's important to know how you can best work with the nursing home. And part of it is you're going to get calls. You got to be prepared for these calls. And how do I handle this call? How do I handle this medical decision? I, I don't want it to be in an emergency. A lot of times it's an emergency setting where someone is so aggressive. They're tearing up a whole room in a nursing home. And we have to say, do we have to send this person to the hospital? Do we need medication? And the family's like, they did what? <laughs> So there's a lot that has to be expressed and explained in a short amount of time. Uh, that's really difficult. Um, I, don't, I, I think it's still really hard, you know, going back. I can only imagine what family members must go through when they get those phone calls. Well, and like you said, it, it's a big decision in terms of do they go to the hospital? Because if it's not a geriatric, you know, psych hospital, they might not get what they really need there either. It's almost more of a safety issue a lot of times. And then people can get bounced around and then that can complicate things as well. Um, and, you know, in, in nursing homes, memory care, I mean, bad things can happen anywhere. They happen a lot of times in our own homes and they might not be publicized. There might not be a call because nobody wants anybody to know about it, but these things are happening all over and we have to we have to be more compassionate we have to have better knowledge in order to deal with it i i talk about the time when i go out and i speak um where my mom would get um she would get really confused with the tv and the, the television is something we can control very easily but a lot of times she'll walk into you know a nursing home or or wherever and the TV is on, and there could be something really traumatic going on with uh, a shooting or a bad accident and their time perception, you know, they think it's happening outside the door. Well, my mom, for example, she had that issue um, once, but then another time she was in this period of time where she would watch the TV show Jag all the time. And my mom was always kind of a big political advocate and she was, you know, very well connected, and, and so she believed Jag was real. And so then she would talk with the staff, and she'd get really upset when the staff wouldn't know the story. They didn't know what was going on in, in the country, and my mom, it just, she blew her top, and she would get aggressive, and, you know, they easily could have called and said, hey, medicator, you know, Dorothy's, Dorothy's on a rant. And we can't handle this. We don't have time. But instead, what that staff did was they really understood her world. And they came together without any supervisor directing them at all. They came together and said, okay, every week, who's ever off work is going to watch Jake. And they're going to call us and we're going to log it so we can all talk to Dorothy to keep her calm. And as a family member, that just melted my heart. And I thought, they get it. Yes. yes. They get it. You know, so sometimes there can be real simple solutions if we, if we let go of our own anxiety, that, um, and anxiety over the change of behavior. Sometimes it can be really simple things that can be changed from, you know, shadows, um, you know, showing and, and they can't find it and they're getting paranoid because they think someone's there and it might be as easy as shutting the blinds, you know, so they're not getting those shadows and things. On the other side, the nurses, they really do want to, you know, a lot of them are overworked, underpaid, poor morale, but they really, 
sincerely do want to help people and want a, the least medications. Um, so it, working as a collaborative team with the family is the goal, but sometimes anger starts to fly, people get defensive, people take things personally, or they have a lot of guilt or anxiety to the person being in the nursing home, or it tends to throw off that whole groove that you just explained really well. Like what you just explained is like what we all want, both sides of the equation, the nurses want it and the families want it. I don't know why it always seems so hard to get there. I think part of it is because we don't talk about it enough. You know, like one of the things, because my mom wanted to go into the nursing home, which no one ever wants to move into a nursing home. But my mom wanted to go in, even with her dementia, because my dad ended up landing there. He had brain cancer, and for whatever reason, he... He didn't take the elevator and he went and he took a tumble down two flights of steps and he was never able to live independently after that. And so the plan was always for my mom to stay with us. And about two weeks in, and we got along really well and there, we weren't anticipating any problems. And about two or three weeks in, my mom, you know, comes out and she says, you know, I want to move into the nursing home and, and out of my mouth, the family, you know, but that's not the plan. You know, you, you have to have a plan and we got to go from A to B to C. We have to follow the plan. And then I asked her why. And she had, oh, this is a woman who couldn't pick out her clothes or tell you what the weather was like. And she said, we've been together 49 and a half years and I'm not leaving him now. And my heart just melted. And it was like, okay, I'm going to make that happen. And so she ended up moving into the nursing home. But again, I think we get so fast paced, um, both family and, and staff, we don't, we don't really think out long term what's best or, or how this is happening or why. And so they said, well, you know, we'll, we'll get rid of your dad's roommate, we'll move him and your mom can move in there. And I said, absolutely not. And they were like, well, what do you mean? And I said, because I don't need both of them dying and she does not need to watch him die. We're going to lose them both. And I said, I want her on the highest functioning floor because she's really social. And I want her to have one activity and one meal every day on that floor. And the rest of the time I'll take off work and I will bring her up to see my dad because she couldn't maneuver to another floor or anything. And so we did that for, I don't know, two or three months until my dad passed. And when my dad died, she was totally acclimated. And I think she lived as long as she did was because she built these deep friendships and bonds. You know, when... When the nursing staff would take her for a walk, she was just walking with a friend. You know, how we perceive things is real different. Or when you were talking about with families, um, I know I, <laughs> I, I never thought I was kind of the staff's worst nightmare, but I'm sure I was, you know, when my mom first moved in. And, and then I had to sit back and go, you know, I got into it one time and I'm thinking, well, why aren't you doing your job? You know, I know what your job is, you know, and, and, and that's the mentality family has. And we, we have this great guilt because we can't always be there all the time. And we have this great passion to make sure that our, our person is safe and comfortable and loved and welcomed and, and, you know, has good care. And so the only way that we can make sure that that happens or so we think is to look for problems. So when we go there, that's what we're looking for. We have to look for things to fix. Well, if we're looking for things to fix, we're going to find things that are broken. And we're not going to notice any of the good stuff that's happening. And that's why staff's scurrying down the halls and doesn't want to talk to us because we're whack, 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 in their face. And so once we can have these conversations explaining this to staff, and explaining this to families, because staff also doesn't realize typically the only time they call somebody is with bad news. Their purse is missing, they got a bruise, we screwed up on a mat. Um, so, I mean, it's, it, that does not build trust. And so both sides have to take a look at what they're doing. And then, and then, you know, once there's that trust, once we know that they're really there to care for our person, you know, getting a call saying, gosh, you know, your mom had the, the funniest giggle. She got us all laughing or, or Sam told this joke or it was the 15th time, but he still gets us every time. 
I mean, that melts families' hearts. And then they start opening up about real things. It just makes a huge difference. But we have to we have to get everybody on the same page. And like you said, the only way we can do that is to have these conversations, to have these educational resources like your book, and to tell people, don't be frightened to ask a question. As caregivers, as doctors and nurses, we have we have a lot of guilt that we carry around as well. Are we good enough? Are we, you know, are we redirecting the correct way? We put a lot of pressure on ourselves to make their life happy. And we're also sad to watch them decline or have problems. It gets to us. So it's, we should all be t- working together, not at odds and understanding each other uh, is the goal, but that's what we have to keep striving for. I realize it's not a perfect process. Well, and it's hard when you have limitations by the insurance companies of how much time you can spend. And, and then, you know, you don't want to sound like you're whining, like, well, I feel that way too. You know, when you feel like you're supposed to be taking care of them, but yet there's a big piece that gives us balance when, when that is told, you know, when we, when we hear that, because now, now that staff person, that medical professional is, you know, we're seeing that human side, which so often we don't, Sometimes we don't know really if it exists because everything seems so wah, 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 you know, (laughs) coming out of the voices and stuff. And that, I mean, that can just settle a person down. I guess we just call that bedside manner. But again, in this fast-paced world, it's really hard to squeeze everything in that is needed, I would imagine, for an appointment or a consultation. The amount of regulations that are going through our head as we're talking to people, because they're so highly regulated. Uh, and people don't know all the regulations. And sometimes families ask us to do stuff that are not allowed in the regulations. <laughs> so you're always like trying to juggle that. Plus, you know, the nursing homes are regularly monitored and they abuse allegations that could be called at any second and your jobs could be in jeopardy or you could be accused of abusing people, and which are very serious allegations. So, you know, I would love just to go over some of the rules like, that people really need to know about nursing homes so they kind of have an idea of what even the staff members were allowed to do and not to do. um, For instance, going to activities, we can't make people go to activities. And I can't tell you how many times families would get frustrated with the staff. Like the activities are there, but all we can do is ask. We can't force. Like those are just, that's just one example of rules where I wish we didn't have all these rules, but you know, with lawyers and insurance companies and Medicare and safety, there's tons of rules. <laughs> as far as maintaining weight, that was another rule that used to drive me crazy because when people didn't want to eat, I'm like, so what? Don't let them eat. You know, if they're not saying, oh, I'm hungry. But no, there's rules about you have to maintain weight. You, you know, if you're losing weight, that sets off another care plan or more paperwork. Or... So that was one of the things that we would talk a lot about is like what decisions do you make do you let them not eat do you put in the tube do you you know so the rules and the quality of life are always kind of like interacting constantly within within the nursing home so I spent some time just trying to really explain what we're allowed to do in nursing homes even with treating aggression with restraint like really trying to make people understand what we have to what we have our limitations are within the homes and the rules uh, and that always led me to deal with the chapter I put in there the most, and that answers one of the questions I wanted to go over, is the quality of life versus the quantity of life. Uh, and I actually made an equation in the book to help people really make hard decisions, because these decisions sometimes feel completely impossible. Like, um, you know, the one I, I think of the most is people who want to eat things they're not supposed to eat on their diet. Uh, to the point that like if they're having trouble swallowing they could aspirate and die or choke and die or have pneumonia and it's like wow what decision do I make do I let my mother eat things they're not supposed to eat and that can hasten their death or do I just let them be happy like these are constant decisions we had to make in with families and they were really hard So I wanted to give people, and, and for me, because of my experience with my mom, it was always weighing the quality, the quality of her life. Like, um, if that pizza is going to give her quality of life, it's shorten, you know, the quantity of her life. 
I may go with the pizza because her life is, dementia is a terminal illness, which is very hard for people at times to grasp, but it is a, a terminal illness. So you have to think of all decisions and uh, nursing home decisions based on that, that fact that you want them to have a quality of life, even if their idea of what quality of life sounds really bad for them and um, can hurt or harm them. So that's, that's really the other major reason I wanted to write the book um, was to really kind of go over that decision-making process, how I, I would do it for my mother or father or um, understanding dementia and our limitations in our treatment. And I think that's really important. And, you know, but so much of preparing for those decisions needs to be done way ahead of time. You know, having this conversation about death and dying and what, you know, what do you want in your life? And we're so fearful to have those conversations like, well, if we talk about it, it's going to happen. And it's like, well, no, you know, probably if you talk about it, it's not going to happen, <laughs> but you'll be prepared. Everyone will be a little more comfortable. And if you change your mind, you know, the forms can be changed. But having those powers of attorney and those healthcare um, declarations and, and, you know, the five wishes, all of those things spilled out, it shouldn't be a one-sided conversation like, okay, you've got the terminal illness, so you need to answer this. This should be everybody in the family going, what do, yeah, what do I want in mind? Because it might be different than what you want. And we all want our, you know, we all want control over our life. So why are we giving up the end of our life by not having these conversations? It makes no sense to me. Yeah, it all the time. People lose control and family members make decisions for them that, I'm sure they would not have wanted. <laughs> or the fighting in the families, too, because, every, no, they would want this. No, they would want that, you know. And um, you, you see and you hear about that. And then the poor doctors are like, okay, now what do we do? And then some land back in court and you go, well, how do we get there? Well, it was a pretty easy path because nobody was communicating. Doctors listen to the loudest voice in the room and the one that they think may like bring them to court and sue them. Uh, that's what I've seen. I've seen doctors go against people's living wills because of that. And it blows my mind. It's like they're so afraid of a lawsuit, like pulling people the hardest. I work in a respirator type facility where we have to decide whether to pull people's respirators. But even though the person would say in the living will, I don't want to live this way. You know, I've told them I want to go. That one family member comes and is very angry and says, I want them to live long. I, I, that's like killing them. The doctor would listen to that one person despite the living will. So we have to have these conversations. So um, people laugh at me at this thing called the death cafe that I've been wanting to do and all my friends make fun of me, but I'm like, um, we have to talk about death because it's gonna happen to all of us. So we should do it sooner rather than later because it could happen at any time as well. So yeah, we and maybe we need to call them living cafes because it's still about life. It's sure. about quality of life and then you sneak that in there that you know, if you really want control over your life, at the end, you, you have to make some statements now. You have to you know, consciously think about this and you can't keep it to yourself. You have to let other people know, and you have to let your doctors know, and your attorneys know, and you know whoever is in charge, um, because you want that followed. Uh, and and I think the other thing that people don't understand is even when you have these conversations, like like I had this with my mom, and we had our whole plan, you know, put out and all set, and yet um, when the time came. I wasn't ready. And so, you know, my mom was in the nursing home for 10 years and she ended up going on hospice. She was starting to have tremors and they thought, okay, this is probably going to be the end. And so I had to update all the paperwork. So we sat on her bed, the nurse and I updated her paperwork and then the nurse went to make copies. And my mom was sleeping in her big Jerry wheelchair. I'll, I'll never forget this. And she was, she was literally sleeping, snoring. I remember holding her hand, crying, going, Mom, is this really what you want? I need to know right now from you, is this still what you want? And out of a dead sleep, she turns her head and she goes, yeah. 
And then she went right back to sleep. But it was like, even though I had this great relationship with my mom, I was very close with her. We have these conversations numerous times. You still, you still second guess. For me, that was a huge gift for my mom to be able to like pull that out and go, yep. And then she ended up living four more years. So, <laughs> but, but it is, a, it's, it's difficult even when you have the conversations and when you don't have the conversations, it's horrific on everybody. I had so many people over 90 year old were so ready to pass. Like I can't tell you how many times people have asked me to kill them help them die. I'm like, they're so ready. At 90, you are ready. If anybody over 90 tells you that, just believe them. And it's not abnormal. It's, they're tired, they're exhausted, in pain. So it's, it's just natural. They've done everything they want. I, I just want, I would get consults of people who said they were wanted to die. And I'm like, they're 90. It's okay to want that. It's not like this always this horrific, horrible thing. But yeah, that's one. The last part of my book that I thought was important was to really look at your parenting, your uh, mother-daughter, father-son relationships. Um, I think that really comes into play when you're making end-of-life decisions. Um, a lot of uh, people who have like, if their mother or father was abusive in some way or neglectful in some way, it's really, really hard for those family members to come back and make these hard decisions. So I, I talk about in the book how I healed my relationship with my mom because she passed before I was able to resolve a lot of um, anger and upset I had with her. So I put that in the book about how I resolve that anger and that frustration because I feel like if you don't, it will impact your decision making. Um, either avoiding the nursing home, avoiding mom, avoiding making decisions, just angry and you don't want your parent to pass with all that anger because when they pass, you're left with all that anger and that frustration and hurt that you haven't dealt with. And that's just not a good place to be. So I put in there how I, I dealt with it. So it's a very personal book for me. Uh, and I disclose some things that are were hard and vulnerable, but just to help people make those same decisions and understand, because there's, there's some parents that no matter how hard you work as kids, they're never happy. Your mom is always going to complain when you go into that nursing home. You're never going to get that love and that acceptance. And so I watched those families struggle so much. And I think part of that book was written for them not to go there and expect mom to change and be loving and nurturing and caring. And then the other part of the book was for people who really fear that loss, like fear that, you know, abandonment. Because a little bit is an abandonment of like the most important relationship you have in your whole life is with your mom I mean that is the most intense relationship so I think a lot of people held on to their mom longer than they should have to the point that the person suffered a little bit you know because of fear of loss so I really think it's important to look at how if your decisions are based a little bit on fear of letting go and fear of loss uh, you shouldn't make it from that place it should be uh, for my mom, I wanted her to go because she was suffering and it was, it was hard for me to let her go, but I didn't want that suffering to continue. So I didn't, we didn't do anything to prolong. She wanted to live longer. She did a lot of things that made her probably suffer more because she wanted to do it. But I was fine with her not doing any of that because it, it's not, I'm not going to make a decision based on my fear of losing her. It's on what is her happiness and what makes her not suffer. Uh, so that was the other important part of the book for me. I think that I want to convey to families. <laughs> Death is something we all have to deal with. And so uh, why we try to scoot around it, I mean, it's, it's right up there with taxes, you know. I mean, it, it's just something that's going to happen. And so, the, you know, we all come into this life, we're all going out of this life. And why not do it on your terms? Why not... Um, why not have a pact with, with your family and friends of, of how you want that to occur? You know, I, I, um, you know, with dementia, a lot of times people will, um, not remember maybe their loved ones. And then what I found too, was that, um, people asked how my mom was doing for two different reasons. And, and one group, 
really cared about how my mom was doing and how my relationship was with her. And then the other, the other ones were like, well, she doesn't remember you, so you don't have to go see her. And so you, even within your own friends or family, there can kind of be this split thing because one side is so uncomfortable with the conversation or hearing about the process of, of dying or a chronic illness or what's happening. It's like, you don't have to go because then if you don't go, then you don't have to tell me and that I'm, that I'm safe. And then others, you know, really want it to support you on that journey. It's not about us. It's about them. What is their best life? And, and how do we support that? Or my brother once heard my mom, there's my mother. She took such good care of me. And he's like, doesn't that make you mad? How could she get you mixed up with grandma? You don't look anything like grandma. And he, you know, it was all about taking it personal because my mom didn't remember him either. She called him Chuck, her brother. And so I said, Mark, you look like Chuck when he was younger. You know, she's gone back in time. This isn't to push your buttons. This isn't to be disrespectful. This is still very loving. She loves Chuck. And, and for me, she somehow, my mom didn't have a good relationship with her mom either. Her, her mom abandoned her when her dad had a massive heart attack and left her home alone. And so she had some issues with, with her mom. But somehow that healed through our caring relationship. How beautiful. I got to be part of that. I don't know what I did, but it brought her peace. And, you know, we really do have to step in their shoes and look at things from, from their perspective. We just have a more compassionate heart because we're just looking from a different angle. And um, I think your book has, you know, just great resources and reflections in it of, and, and the sense of humor, I think most people are going to really appreciate. Some people will just be too tense, and this isn't funny, but, you know, most people on a journey with dementia will say, you're going to laugh or you're going to cry, and you're probably going to do both. But what do you want more of, you know? And how do you make, rem you know, remarkable moments is really through joy and laughter. You could even speak as a doctor in terms of what, laughter does to our body chemistry, you know, to bring us back in balance, to calm us down. We need to use all of these tools, you know, to, to move through this. And we need to have these conversations about, you know, what is precious in our life? What, what is important um, today and tomorrow? And it could be little things even like, because um, a lot of times people are moving out of their house into a nursing home or a memory care what are the important things that need to go with them? You better figure that out. And if they're progressed far enough, then you need to talk to maybe some other family members or friends that know, oh, they bought this piece was really special because they bought this on their honeymoon or, you know, whatever. Um, those, those things can be really, really important to people. And we have to, we have to get to know each other better. I have conversations with my kids about death and dying, including my own passing. You know, I believe, I don't believe we die. I believe we pass to another energy, but I openly talk to my kids. I need to prepare them to live life and be independent and handle things without me there. And I let them know, you know, I'm training you for all that purpose because I'm not always going to be here. And they're like five and seven. And we have those conversations I went to her funeral. Uh, the hospice worker was fine with little the kids coming in. They said goodbye to their grandmother and they said beautiful things to her. And I know even though she couldn't hear anything, she knew their presence was there. And we normalize dying. And that's what we have to really think about in our society that with our own children, um, have those conversations, you know, don't avoid it to the last minute because none of our lives are guaranteed or promised forever. So kids, even as young as my five and seven-year-old can handle it. I think when you bring it on as this is normal, it's not as scary for them. My mom was really big. Um, she would bring us to all the wakes and the funerals, and her friends are, oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be bringing the kids. My mom was very adamant. They need to know about death. They need to know. In fact, even um, this, some people might not believe this, but my mom and I ended up at the very end having a very spiritual relationship and she would come to me in dreams at the very end when she couldn't even speak. 
And, um, you know, one time it was like you, you know, two in the morning, she's like, you better finish my obituary because I'm not hanging around here much longer. And I was like, OK, you know, I go running out and I'm working on her obituary. And and then she came to me um, a little closer to when she was dying. And she says, you're not going to be here. I need you gone. You're always the one to help people pass. And the rest of the family needs to learn. You know yeah. how important this has been to me all of my life. You will not be here. I need you gone. They, they need they need to touch and feel the process. And sure as heck, I had two keynotes in Arizona, and I said goodbye to my mom when she was actively dying. My whole family thought I was having a nervous breakdown, like how you know because this was so out of character for me to leave because I was always that person at the, at the bedside. And, um, and I, yet I felt very comfortable and I had told my daughter ahead of time, we had conversations about this and I said, you know, this is what grandma's telling me. And I, I left and it was like, she had lined up perfect people, my whole trip, person on the plane, the person sitting next to me at the baggage claim. I mean, it was like perfect, perfect, perfect. And then what happened which was really incredible. And the, I, it, she taught me a new tool to care because I wasn't really into the video conferencing. So when I'm sitting in baggage claim, my daughter calls and she says, do you, you know, grandma's having a hard time breathing. Do you want to say goodbye again? And I, and I said, yeah, why don't you put her on the phone? And she says, no, let's FaceTime. And I'm like, okay, so here I am in baggage claim, crying, say, you know, looking at my mom, saying goodbye one more time. And she ends up living. But the woman next to me, sat ne next to me at the plane uh, across the row, heard my whole conversation with the man who was next to me on the plane, whose father-in-law had dementia. So the whole flight, we're talking dementia. And she just, she hands me a Kleenex and says, I wish I would have known you when I was going through this with my mother. And it was just amazing. So we did this whole virtual, you know, meetings. And we did, like, I got back to my hotel. We actually did, like, a, I don't know, six, eight-hour vigil with the camera. And I wasn't hands-on, but I could guide my family, you know, mm -hmm. on what to do. Grandma's hot. Go go get some washcloths. Don't, don't just ask for a couple. Ask for a whole bag and get some ice. And, you know, and, and so I could guide them into what to do. So they had the hands-on experience. And, you know, I could even joke and put my one brother who was being just a jerk in place when no one else would and you know the room <laughs> broke out and I got to see her take her last breath I got to do last rites I mean I I was totally totally part of the process but my mom got her wish that I wasn't there and everyone else was more involved and so I mean it was beautiful I think we just need to be more respectful of one another and I think we have to look inward in terms of how do we want to live if we've got dementia or another chronic illness or, or if we're involved in just a horrible accident. You know, how prepared are we to help our loved ones out when the time comes? Because to me, that's a big piece of it is I, I want to make it easier on them. I always let them know, I'll be fine. I'll be in another place where there's no suffering. I'll be, at, I'll be, I'll be watching you. This has been a great conversation. Anything else that you want to want to add about your book? Look, I shrunk grandma. No, I think you you did a great job. I really enjoyed your story too. <laughs> <laughs> to say you handled it like amazing. Like how I, I want every family member to do it, and you you live. Uh, without fear and uh well, I'm sure you felt afraid but you, you went and plunged along and did everything like how I would like would want every family member and I'm truly saying that out of sincerity but and you gave your mom a beautiful passing so that's very touching I think one of the last things that I can add for maybe family members and and for staff too is one of the things that I learned on my 30-year journey when I would get really frustrated and this helped me immensely. And I wish I would have learned it earlier, like in the first 20 years. <laughs> but it took me 20 years to figure this out. When I would really get pushed against the wall, when I would feel really afraid and um, just scared and out of control, I would, I would sometimes go in my basement even when no one was home and I would just scream, what is the lesson? 
There's <laughs> got to be a reason. What is the lesson? Why are we all going through this? And what was funny with that is because I didn't feel comfortable doing that out in front of people because I would sometimes, you know, you're just ready to lose it uh -oh. and you don't want to look like a crazy person. Now I can say it in a calmer fashion, still have the same effect. But what, what was interesting was it made me realize I wasn't looking how to fix the problem. I was spinning in the spew of confusion. Mm -hmm. And so I, even though I thought I was looking for the, the solution, I thought I was on top of the problem. I wasn't at all because usually within 15 minutes to an hour, because then I, once I would let that out of me and I would, I would, I would focus on what's the lesson. I would start looking for different things and it was like, Oh, Oh, it wasn't about that at all. <laughs> it was about this. And, and it was just kind of a, a shocking thing, but that kind of helped my journey, I think, become a little bit more, uh, more spiritual and, and um, I, you know, you learned lessons of different levels of unconditional love that life changes mm -hmm. as you go through this process. And it was almost, um, in fact, I just interviewed a man, we were uh, on, on Tuesday regarding this whole thing. And he has a book called, what's it called? A Path Revealed. Mm -hmm. And he, he says it's all about his wife's early onset, but really it's a spiritual journey and how it, it was all filled with love and hope. And, but he just kind of reframed everything. He looked at things differently. He looked at himself differently, how he did things. And, and you know, it's not just them. It's, it's all of us that have an effect on one another. And so we really do have to look at it from a, is, is individualized as dementia is, uh, and the death and dying process is, it's still kind of a tribal thing that affects many. And so we have right. to look at it from big and small views. There's not always an answer or something you could fix. Sometimes you just have to be there. You just have to mm -hmm. be present for people. That's an excellent point because we can't fix it, but we can support it. Right. So now people can at Karen Severson, MD at Comcast.net. We've got that on the on the radio show and the blog. And then you also gave us a phone number for Clarity Health Solutions. So that phone number is 561-781-3333. That's and um, again, thank you so much for your time today. This has really, really been an interesting conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.